Today we continue, if you're new with us, our series titled Just Lead, and actually we're continuing and, and bringing it to a close. And it's interesting that it lands on this first Sunday of Advent going into the Christmas season because even this book itself and, and a reading of the Old Testament uh, in general, as we're in 1 Samuel, kind of constantly points towards this angst of when is someone going to come along that actually meets the needs of the people, who is going to lead them the way God would want them to lead them. And we're in the book of 1 Samuel, which we've learned is all about transitions, triumphs, and tragedies, and how do you live through those in life. And we're seeing those in the midst of God's people and what God is teaching us in the midst of it. And one of the big ones in this book is about Israel's first king and what they cried out for, what they clamored for, and wanting a king like the other nations. And and today's message, we're going to see that king's kind of final acts and how his life came to a close, and it comes to a very sad close. And we're going to reflect and see why his kingship and how he led uh, was a discouragement in in many ways to Israel. And even though it it, it has shades of hope, as we know, David's coming on the scene. Uh, That's obviously an exciting thing as we see that. We're going to see as we look at David's life in 2 Samuel that David is far from perfect. He's going to make some very poor choices in his leadership. And even though he's characterized as a man after God's own heart, One of the things that you need to learn as we read the Old Testament is that man is never going to be his own or her own savior. We are always going to fall short as humans of what we really need to live the way God wants us to live. And ultimately, all these stories cry out to a greater king who would come, a king who would never fall into tragedy, would never, you know, get arrogant and triumph. A king that will never leave. He won't leave the throne. He won't be gone. He will reign forever. And that is Jesus whom we celebrate who going into this Christmas season and who is the ultimate king. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to 1 Samuel 28 today. 1 Samuel 28. In your worship guide, there's a uh, sheet you can follow along with our points today. It also points to where this passage is in those black hardcover Bibles in the chairs in front of you. We're going to just pull out the last scenes of Saul's life. There's a couple other chapters we're skipping over where it jumps to uh, some of David's final escapades in the first uh, Samuel series, but we're not going to look at those today. We're just going to look at kind of how Saul drifts off the scene. And my title for this is The Ruin of a Religious or The Path to Religious Ruin, The Ruin of a Religious Leader. I think it's somewhat pertinent uh, in that is because I think we see this pattern in our nation today, a nation that we know has Christian roots at its core, but has really drifted from those in terms of them being anchored to the person of Jesus Christ. A lot of American morality and, and values are centered in the Bible, but have been stripped of the Bible and stripped of the person of Jesus Christ and just held out as this is kind of the American values. And they've drifted from that point, and it's just become this general moralism of this is what we do, this is we're good people, and this is how we handle things. And what we're seeing in today's media in our world is, is that's never sufficient. That people that we've held up as being, you know, on the outside maybe moral or good people, they seem that way. They seem to be doing good things in, in our politics and news or whatever it might be, that their lives on the inside are in shambles. And this is the path of every single one of us that tries to separate any type of life of purpose 
from the person of Jesus Christ. And Saul's a perfect example of that. We're not talking about a leader of some foreign wicked nation like the Philistines that rejected God altogether. You're talking about a king who is leading God's people, who is around all kinds of religious truths. And yet, it never traveled from his head down to his heart. And what he did outwardly never was consistent with who he was inwardly. And so we're going to look at this uh, last season of Saul's life, and, and I'm titling it The Path to Religious Ruin. How you can ruin your life as a religious person, but also how you can get off that path. Uh, we'll see at the very end as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So 1 Samuel chapter 28, we'll start in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 28, uh, and I'll pray and jump in and show you kind of these paths that lead or what it looks like for uh, the ruin of a religious leader let's pray and we'll jump in father we thank you for these truths and these stories that you've recorded through your people and preserved through many many years lord so that we can gather as your church today and read them and as paul said learn lessons from them um, even as christians so we can see your hand at work in the past, and we can see uh, just a glimpse at how we as humans often respond to you or don't respond to you. So Lord, I pray that as we open your word and see these things today, that you would sharpen us as your body. You would speak to our hearts, that you would uh, inform our minds about the truth of what it means to follow you and honor you from the inside and not just with outward actions. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 28, the author's gonna start by giving us some background as usual to kind of set up what's happening here, so I'll explain it as we go. So verse three starts with this. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him. So Samuel, as we know, who the, the title of these two books is named after him. He was the primary spiritual leader. So this primary spiritual leader is gone, uh, so that's one of the things we know. The person that was a big guide to them is gone. It says, and Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Kind of strange that the author would, would put that there, but what he's basically setting us up for is what's going to come in the story, is that here's the typical means of that day, the positive and the negative, of how people would seek God's will. Samuel was a prophet, so he would speak and share God's truth, and that's how the Israelites would be guided. But one of their fallen practices was to you know, go after mediums or spiritists and necromancers, people who would call up the dead. And one of the things God had had Saul do and his people do to say, hey, that's not how you find the will of God. That is not okay. And so Saul, and one of his good deeds is he had gotten all those people out of the land. And so the author is kind of setting us up saying, hey, Samuel's dead. That's the way they were supposed to seek God's will. And then these other people that they would seek, the necromancers and the mediums, they had been put out of the nation. And then it says, verse 4, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So what you see here is a couple things. As an Old Testament reader and someone who would, uh, would understand the setting of Israel, there's a couple things that should pop out to us about why the author, the Holy Spirit, included this information. One is if the Israelites are fighting, fighting excuse me, 
That didn't really come out, did it? <laughs> they may have been doing that. It was a bunch of guys in the army out in the middle of the wilderness, so they were probably doing that as well, but that's not what I intended to say. <laughs> I almost feel like I have to say excuse me after saying that. So, Anyways, if the Israelites are fighting with the uh, Philistines and the Philistines are winning and causing fear, it's usually because of one reason. The Israelites have not been following the commands of the Lord. And God had told them this very clearly in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. You can go back there. Before they even went into the land, God said, this is what's going to happen when you get into the land. If you obey me, I'm going to bring these blessings to you. And and as you obey me, you're going to have the strength and I'm going to be with you to push all these people out of your land. But if you don't obey me, then they're going to be a constant nagging in your life. Their presence will always be there. And if it gets so bad, your obedience gets so bad, they're going to come and actually exile you and throw you out of your land, and they're going to occupy it. So that is a very important truth that should guide you through reading the Old Testament all the time. Whenever you see that scenario happening, you know that the cause of it was the Israelites' obedience or lack thereof. And in this case, The Philistines are fighting and they're winning, they're maintaining their occupation. So we know that the Israelites weren't obeying and usually when they weren't obeying, their leader wasn't obeying. And then it says the second thing, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Those were the three ways in which they would hear from the Lord. By dreams, you see that throughout the Old Testament. By the Urim or the Urim and the Thummim, which is a, two little devices that the priests had in their ephod that they wore. And that was one means by which they got and received information from God. And then lastly, through the prophets, as the prophets spoke out. And so what the author's painting is a picture is our enemies are beating us up and every time I ask for information or from wisdom from the Lord, he's just totally silent. And you have to read this in light of the whole story that we've been reading. So here's my first point for you and why I think it's so important is when I consistently disobey God's will, I lose my ability to hear it. When I consistently disobey God's will, I lose my ability to hear it. Now, you can't necessarily get this from this single passage, but we're not reading a single passage. We're looking at this book as a whole. And what we're seeing now is the end of Saul's life that's been characterized by this very truth. Saul has consistently heard from God through Samuel, and he doesn't obey. He didn't wipe out the Amalekites when God told him to do that, clearly. He, he tweaked his obedience, and he saved things he wasn't supposed to save, and then he made excuses. He offered sacrifices at times in Samuel's place because Samuel didn't get there on his timeline, and, and he thought, well, I'll just go in and I'll do the job of the priest myself. He didn't honor David's anointing as king and instead became jealous and went after him. Again, that was from the Lord. It came through Samuel. He wiped out all the priests of Nob just because they shared some information that was true but wasn't necessarily against Saul. He just mistook it. And and you see this pattern in Saul's life over and over and over again. He doesn't follow the commands of the Lord. He keeps asking for God to give him truth, but he never wants to follow it. And this is a truth that comes throughout Scripture uh, in many places, that when we hear God's word over and over again and choose not to obey it, we'll begin to lose our ability to hear it. We just become deaf to it. We become numb to it. It would happen to the people of Israel. 
In fact, God through the prophet Isaiah was teaching them that, that at the beginning of the book in chapter one, God is kind of on a rant saying, hey, I get so tired of seeing you guys at church all the time. I'm paraphrasing it. He says, your feet are constantly you know, stomping through my temple and, and all these sacrifices are going up. You're going through all your worship practices, but he says, you know what? You open your hands, you open your mouth to pray, and I don't hear you. I don't respond to you. Because you go through all this religious worship but then you go home and you treat your neighbor unjustly. You treat your spouses wrongly. You don't live out the truth of who I am in your life, in your everyday life, and then you just come back and go through these religious ceremonies. And when he commissions Isaiah in chapter 6, this is what he says to him. This is a phenomenal passage. He says, I want you to go, Isaiah, and I want you to preach a message, but they're not going to be able to hear it. I want you to show them a truth but they're never going to be able to see it because I'm making them deaf and I'm making them blind. And we know why. Because God had been telling the Israelite people over and over and over again what he wanted them to do. And they refused to obey. Church, this is really important truth. And I think we're seeing it in Saul's life. But the story beckons us to stop and say, is this true in my life? Am I a person that, that shows up regularly to a lot of different religious ceremonies, but when I go home, it rarely ever changes how I act? In fact, it brings out a truth that I think is true of all of us, is we tend to religionize, I made that up, I religionize our disobedience away. We get involved in unhealthy relationships, and instead of addressing them in a godly way and, and obeying God in those relationships, we just put on worship music more. Or we go to a couple more, you know, church services. Or we do some more Bible studies. We do all these religious activities to try to cover up an area that we know we're not being obedient and hoping that God will somehow honor that area of disobedience in our life. We don't want to obey God in our finances, but rather than getting right with him in that area and handling them as a godly steward, we pray over a budget that we know isn't of the Lord, or we, we go to church more, or we, just, we get in a small group. Let's try a small group. Let's, let's try this. We try to put religious activities into our life rather than addressing the truths that we know in our personal life and submitting to God in those areas. And that's the path that Saul had been on and he was kind of at the point of no return almost by the time we see this and we're going to see it's going to result in a tragic end that once we've disobeyed consistently for a while and we fail to hear the next step is we get desperate and that's what we're going to see in Saul's life so if we continue in verse 7 follow along with me we're going to see what happens now to Saul after uh, he, he can't hear anything. He's trying to figure out, i got to hear something from God if I'm going to move forward. So verse 7 says, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So now you see Saul's desperate. God won't answer him the way he thinks he should. He's tried all the different means that God tends to speak. He doesn't stop to ask himself, Is there something in me? that's causing God to be silent. Saul's just demanding that God tell him what to do, 
And, and God's kind of fed up. He's saying, I've told you for your whole life, your whole kingship, and you fail to obey me every time. And it's a gracious thing that God doesn't speak to us in these times. Because this is another principle of Scripture. The more you've been entrusted with, the more you'll be accountable for. So God not giving you more revelation that you're not going to obey is a strange form of grace to you so you're not accountable for something that you're not going to do. And Saul's in that spot. So he gets desperate. He says, all right, I'll go to the mediums. And they're not even in there. He's, he's cast them out. Uh, and so watch this story as you go through it. It's laughable as we look at it, but we're going to see ourselves in it in many ways as well. So Saul disguises himself, it says in verse 8. You know right off the bat, the king's disguising himself to go see something is probably not a good thing. Put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. It's kind of humorous, right? She's saying, you know what Saul's done, don't you? And she's talking to Saul. She doesn't even know she's talking to him at the moment. And Saul says, she says, why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? So here's what's interesting. Here's these mediums that aren't following God. They've been thrown out of the land and Saul's coming to him now in desperation and the medium is telling Saul that what he's doing isn't a good thing. He says, why are you coming to me to do this? Uh, you know, you're going to bring about my death. She's willing to obey the God's commands, but Saul's not. And here's how Saul responds. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Wow, that's a pretty arrogant statement. That he's standing in the place of the Lord saying, you won't be punished for doing something that's clearly against God's will. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So this is what's strange about this. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I think it's just worth mentioning in passing. Mediums or necromancers say that they bring back the spirits of people. That's not consistent with what you see in Scripture. This is the one exception to that. And that's exactly what it is, an exception. You're going to see how God uses this to basically speak to Saul, who is a king, a leader in his nation, to remind him of what it is. But this is not the norm. What necromancers or, or spiritists do is they, they try to connect with the spiritual world. And most likely what's happening, based on what's consistent with Scripture, is, is there is all kinds of spirits in the world. There is both but good spirits, angels that are always around and we have angels near us and, and they intercede and do things that we have no idea of what they're doing and there's legions of them. But there's also legions of demons that are fallen angels. Same power, just working in a different manner. And the Bible in the Old Testament calls some of them familiar spirits. And that term means that they're familiar with the person they're assigned to. And spirits, just like good spirits, we you know, with the term guardian angels, that God uses angels even to protect and assigns them to people. Well, the devil mimics God in almost every way. And he has evil spirits that are assigned to individuals as well to work with them. And these are super high-powered, intelligent beings, much smarter than we are, much more powerful. And so they probably remember almost everything that you and I do. 
And so when a medium, say, brings up or tries to tap into a, a spirit of an old person that's dead, what's probably happening is not that person's soul coming up because that's God's domain. There, he deals with that and he tells us exactly what happens to us after we die. What is probably happening is they're tapping into an evil spirit that happened to be assigned to that person and that knows a whole lot about them. In fact, those evil spirits could be with you and probably are with you in moments when no other human being is with you. And they're tempting you, they're pushing you to do things that are not good for you, but they also know what you do in those moments. Which is why sometimes people say, well, they told me something that that no other person could possibly know. It had to be my relative or it had to be this. Absolutely not. The devil would love to deceive you into thinking that that's true. And what's funny is even in the story, for a woman who knows that's what she's doing is tapping into these evil spirits, do you notice her response when Samuel actually shows up? She freaks out. She goes, whoa, this has never really worked before. They know they're dealing with spirits. They're just as deceiving as the demons themselves are. And she's freaking out because Samuel's actually showing up. And most likely what's happening here is God sends Samuel's soul back at this moment to have this conversation to confirm for us what God's been trying to tell Saul his whole life. And that's what we see happening. So he says, and what do you see to her? What is appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Here's my second point. When I lose my ability to hear God's will, I seek desperate measures. When I lose my ability to hear God's will, I seek desperate measures. Now, let me just really quickly clarify something. Disobedience is not the only route towards a season of not hearing, being able to hear God. At least, uh, maybe an intimacy that you might have, might have. There are seasons in the Bible where you see, even like David, my soul longs for you, it pants for you, Lord. There are seasons you can go through in your life where you can be obedient to God, and there's just a, maybe a, a time of silence where you feel like God's not near to you. That can happen even in seasons of obedience. What we're looking at here, though, is a situation where constant disobedience has led to a discipline of, hey, I'm not talking to you anymore. And this is what reveals the difference. A person who is seeking the Lord even in obedience will continue to press in, just like David says, I pant for you, I long for you, I'm going to wait for you, Lord, even in this season of dryness. But Saul immediately abandons ship and says, I'm going to find whatever I can get to get what I want to move forward. He becomes desperate. And we have a tendency to do the same thing. We, we are in financial debt. And so rather than taking God's word that he said over and over again, saying, live within your means. Instead, we just transfer debt from one credit card to the next, and we continue spending just like we do. We, do, we get desperate. We look for all these quick fixes. Let me get a lottery ticket. That'll solve our problems. You know what? Most lottery people become bankrupt after so many years, too, because they never change their habits. You go to desperate measures when God's saying, you need to come back and listen to what I've already communicated to you. You come out of an unhealthy relationship. And you realize it was unhealthy. And instead of 
addressing that and changing and addressing what needs to change, you jump right into another relationship because it's got to be a sign. I mean, they just happened to show up. The moment I broke up with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, they came walking in. It was like a sign from God that this is who I really meant to be with. We become desperate, and we don't pause to ask God, what do you want to do in my life? Church, our community is filled with this in all the religion in our community that's put aside Jesus and put aside the clear teaching of his word. And because God shuts up his revelation often during that time, we have a community that says, I need more, I'll pray to a saint. I'll pray to Mary, if Jesus can't save me, I'll, I'll get desperate, I'll go to all these means that the Bible very clearly says are not true because we don't listen to what his word actually says. See, when we stop obeying what his word clearly says, it doesn't matter what religious hoops you jump through. They're just a desperate grasp. When God has made it very clear, just repent, just come back to me. I've made a way for you to be restored. The story goes on, and we're gonna see in verses 15 through 19 what the result of these desperate measures are. It says, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'd be disturbed too, right? He's in the bosom of Abraham. He's having a great time and suddenly he's got to come back to this broken world and speak to a guy that hasn't listened to him his whole life. Saul answered, I'm in great distress. He doesn't stop to say, why am I in great distress? He just says, I'm in great distress. For the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Now, this is hilarious. This is like Bible humor. Think about it. Samuel has been the one who's told Saul this over and over and over again, and Samuel or Saul continues to not follow it. And so when he's at this desperate measure, who does he go back to? The one guy that he hasn't followed his whole life, and he summons him back up, and he's just going to get the same exact message. Samuel said, why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. What he's saying there is not that they'll be with him in, in paradise or in the bosom of Abraham, meaning you're going you're to be in the grave just like I'm in the grave, Samuel's saying. That's where you're going to be by tomorrow. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Here's my third point and the third step in this is my desperate measures do not change God's will. My desperate measures do not change God's will. Saul was trying to manipulate God instead of submitting to him. And anytime we ignore our past sins, I'm not saying we dwell on it or we beat ourselves up with, over it, but we don't address it. Anytime we ignore our past sins, it won't sustain our relationship with God. Repentance is the only way that we restore our fellowship and our walk with God. And Saul was trying to avoid that. He always blamed, he always made it someone else's issue and he never owned his personal sin. And pretty soon, God just became quiet. 
And we jump to chapter 31, and we're going to see the result of this. So in between, you have a couple escapades of David, but chapter 31 is basically the next day in Saul's life, and we're going to see how what Samuel said comes about. It says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. So now all the sons, Saul's sons are killed. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not for he feared greatly. So Saul's asking his armor bearer to take his life. He's been wounded. He doesn't want the Philistines to find him and finish him off. And his armor bearer says no. It says, therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw what, that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. You see the result is the enemy won here because Saul would not be obedient. And here's my last point for you. My failure to obey God will result in tragic loss. This is a physical reminder of what is true for all of us in a spiritual manner, and oftentimes physical as well. Saul's failure to obey resulted in tragic personal and public loss. Because of the situation he was in as a leader, it affected a lot more people than just himself. His sons were all killed. The whole nation ends up fleeing now as a result. It's interesting Jesus summarizes this story in one sense uh, by a parable he tells a very short but powerful parable in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 7. We go to Matthew chapter 7, you'll see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shares this mini parable. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. Now he's going to contrast that with another scenario of another type of person. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Now let me pause here for a minute to help you see something that's said in here. Jesus isn't talking about the wicked person far from God that just rejects God outrightly, even though it applies to him as well, but Look at who he's talking about. He's talking about the person who hears God's word. He's not talking about people outside the church or outside his people. What Jesus is distinguishing here in this parable is people that are in the religious circles. Because both people here can look very much the same. They're both hearing Jesus' words on a regular basis. They're both building a house. They're both making a life for themselves. The difference is, what do they do with the words that they've heard? And he's saying, people who hear these words of mine and do not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great 
was the fall of it. So the winds, the sand, those all portray basically judgment in life. And the only people who will stand through that judgment are those who not hear God's word, who don't listen to a sermon every single Sunday and then podcast during the week. You can listen to a million sermons. You can read God's word a hundred billion times. And that won't save you. It's what you do with it. Do you obey it? Do you trust God as the one whom he's revealed himself to be? And Saul's kingship was a sad example of how people can be religious on the outside, can be all around the right people in the right places. He was the king of the nation of Israel, God's people. And yet that couldn't save him. Because positions and places don't save people. A personal relationship with God that says, I trust you, God. I trust what you did for me is what puts your house on the rock. And because Saul never obeyed, when the storm came, when judgment came, his whole life was wiped out. It was a tragic end. However, there's another king, a greater king, a perfect king, a sinless king who never disobeyed, who listened to every command that God ever gave him. And his name was Jesus. But here's what's interesting about Jesus. The one who taught that very parable didn't experience it in this life himself. Jesus was the one who perfectly obeyed every single time. And yet when judgment came at the end of his life, his body was beaten, his back was bruised and bloodied, his name was mocked, and he was pierced through just like Saul was pierced through. Jesus' life ended as horribly and even more pathetic than Saul's did. Why would that be when he taught a parable that says so much different? Because Jesus came to save the Saul's of this world. Jesus came to become the consequence, to take the punishment that every Saul in this world deserves. That by, by nature, we want to manipulate God, not submit to him. And so Jesus came as the one person who lived perfectly before the Father. He didn't try to manipulate God when he was in the garden pleading three times, Father, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. Not my will, O Lord, but yours be done. Jesus submitted in every area for you and me. And then he died like he was the worst sinner on earth so that you and I, who are the worst sinners on earth, who have rejected God at our heart from our very nature from the day we were born, can put our faith and trust in a perfect, holy sacrifice and receive the consequences of his perfect life because the Bible says he took the consequences of our sinful, Saul-like lives. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin, meaning become the outcome of sin, the consequences of sin, the punishment of sin for us so that we might become his righteousness.
if you want to build your life on this rock, there's two things that it requires. The first is that you trust that this rock is reliable to stand the storm, that you believe that the rock that you are going to build your life on can stand in the storm. And Jesus' resurrection is what proves that. He is the only man to be raised from the dead to live forever. His rock, he is that rock, and he will stand through the judgment. And until you stop trusting in the sands of this world and build your house on your money and on your popularity and on your fame and on your abilities and and all these things that we do, until you stop trusting in the sands of this world and put your faith and trust in him, until you recognize that all those stands, all those sands that we love to build on will not stand in the judgment day, you're going to keep trusting them. And if you want to build your house on the rock, you need to first trust that Jesus is who he said he is. And the second thing you need to do is begin obeying the things that he teaches you and I. You see, if your trust is not leading to obedience in your life, then you have a problem with your trust you're probably not trusting because we obey what we trust. If you trust that your money's gonna save you, you're gonna obey and follow your money. If you trust a certain relationship is gonna save you, you're gonna obey and follow that relationship. If you trust that a certain group in our city and a certain connections in our city are the things that are gonna save you, you're gonna obey the things that you have to do to be in that little group. And if you trust Jesus Christ, you're gonna obey him. And that'll hum in time but that's how you build your house on the rock.